thing we really do know is that we've got a very strange person on our hands. Here's Johnny! You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! Let's face it, baby, these days, you gotta have a sequel! You fly back to school now, little Starling. Hello and welcome to another episode of Once Upon a Nightmare. I am your host Lorraine Purden and I am here to discuss the fictional horrors of the world and sometimes they may be real. There is a real story behind this film, well loosely based. It goes back to 1946 when the occupants of Texarkana, Arkansas were terrorised by a masked killer. He was never caught and this is the town that dreaded sundown. Samuel P. Fuller, age 24. Linda Mae Jenkins, age 19, brutally attacked March 3rd, 1946. Howard W. Turner, 29. Emma Lou Cook, 17. Bodies discovered in a wooded area on March 24th. Roy Allen, 17. Peggy Loomis, 15. Both found dead April 14th in Spring Lake Park. Floyd Reed, age 34, murdered in his home on May 3rd. Mrs. Reed shot twice but survived. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the Phantom Killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in The Town That Dreaded Sundown. The Town That Dreaded Sundown was directed by Charles B. Pierce and written by Earl E. Jones and released in 1976. It is a 15 and on for only an hour and a half. It had a budget $400,000, but I couldn't get the box office figures, but apparently it made about four hundred and fifty grand on the home market. In the town of Texarkana, a young couple are brutally attacked while out on a country road, but they do survive. This attack causes confusion for the local police, especially when more attacks occur, but this time the victims do not survive. The deputy, Norman Ramsey, played by Andrew Prine, brings in the help of a Texan Texas Ranger, Captain James D. Morales, played by Ben Johnson, to assist with the case. Despite their efforts, the killer is never caught. The film starts off with narration, very dramatic narration, I might add. Uh, it describes what happened in the year of 1946, stating that the film we are about to see is true, where it happened, how it happened, and the only thing they changed was its names. But as we know with a lot of films based on true crime, they don't always stick to actually what happened. And they didn't with this film. And that did cause some issues for the family members with how the real life victims were represented. When you do a film based on real life murders, you have to be careful. You're dealing with real life people and they, as I said, they have families that can still be alive and people that care for them. Five people were murdered and three were injured in what would become known as the Texacana Moonlight Murders at the hands of an armed man who would get the name the Phantom Killer. The man would cover his face with a cloth mask and cut holes out for his eyes, making it very hard to capture him. If you want to get an idea of what this is like, this is basically the mask that um, 
Jason Voorhees had before he got the hockey mask. So I think that's probably where they got the idea from it. I can't remember if I've ever read that and looked it up, but I, I'm, ta I'm guessing that's what it is. Anyway, the fact he was never caught does not help with the reputation of this town either. It has become known for something that people just don't want to be associated with. What also didn't help is the fact that the film was made and that draws attention. And the tagline of the movie was, in 1946, this man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. Now, technically, as he was never caught, this could be true. But also, why did the killing stop? Usually, it's, you know, they've gone to prison, they themselves died, or sometimes they just stopped. I think apparently, what's his name? Gary Ridgway. Apparently, he stopped for a while because he fell in love. I think that's who it was. But you know what I mean? Why all of a sudden did they stop? The mayor, Harvey uh, Nelson, feared the tagline would scare the community and felt it wasn't true, but he wasn't caught. So it would be something that I would forever fear if I lived there. But I do agree that plastering it all over a poster of a movie, that's not going to help the situation, is it? So the first attack took place on February 22nd. The fictional couple, Linda May, played by Christine Ellsworth and Sammy Fuller, played by Mike Hathworth, Hackworth, are up Lover's Lane. And Linda does hear something, but Sammy is very dismissive. He wants a bit of action, so he's just like, it's fine, it's fine. And that's kind of how I read it. Well, unfortunately, she is right, as we see a man in dark clothes and a hooded mask, which, you know, it looks a bit like a pillow. And he lifts the bonnet of a car and disar disarms the engine by removing this wire. We do get a close-up of these attackers' eyes, and he's very angry. And the way he, like, thrusts this wire, he's, like, all kind of tensed up and gritted teeth. And, you know, he's just torn out a part of the engine in front of them as they look terrified from the inside of the car and he does this with such force he's like full of rage and it's dark and it's isolated and while they're in this car it doesn't really give them the security they wanted so this first scene is based on couple 25 year old jimmy hollis and mary Laurie, who was only 19 this couple were able to explain what happened as they luckily survived they were approached by a man while at lover's lane and ordered out the car Jimmy was ordered to take his pants off and then he was attacked with a gun. He wasn't shot with it, but he was beaten with it and it rendered him unconscious. So this makes you think he's trying to get rid of the um, man so he can overpower the women. The, the woman seems to be his main interest in all these killings. Mary reported that she was also hit herself, but then she was ordered to run from the attacker. So she did and he would eventually catch up with her and then ask her why she ran away. And when she explained he told her to, he said she was a liar. And then he proceeded to rape her with his gun. Mary was not examined for the rape, but there was bruising around her area. And luckily for Mary, though, if there can be any luck in this type of story, these headlights appeared and this caused the attacker to flee but not before hitting Mary one last time. Both victims, as I said, did survive, although they did have conflicting stories. Mary thought he was African-American and Jimmy thought he was white, but they did both agree that he was about six foot tall. But I suppose to be fair in situations like this, it's kind of, you do hear that, you know, sometimes victims are hard to take as witnesses because, especially when it's too different, because you, you don't know what you see. You know, everyone kind of interprets things differently. And when you're in that type of, type of panic, you know, your mind might play tricks on you. 
But like that of Jimmy and Mary, Sammy and Linda were taken to hospital and Officer Ramsey does show a lot of concern. He wants police presence in Lover Lane, which is good. But no suspects were found and it seems to have settled down. I suppose they could put this off to an isolated incident. But 21 days later, March 24th, a young couple head off together in the rain. Buddy Turner, played by Rick Hildreth, and Emma Lou Cook, played by Misty West. As they head off, Ramsey then takes it upon himself to go and monitor the area. He really seems to give a shit, this, this policeman. The character of Emma Lou was based on Polly Moore 19, and Buddy was 29-year-old Richard L. Griffin. The portrayal of Polly caused issues within the film by Polly's brother, Mark Melton Moore. Mark Moore took the director to court in 1978 as he felt his sister was not portrayed in a way that served who she was. Polly was represented in the character as a woman who had dropped out of school, described in the court as a woman of loose morals. They also did not like how the murder was portrayed within the film, which did not represent what actually happened. And as we see in the movie, Ramsey does hear gunshots and goes to explore while asking for backup. And hearing more gunshots, he comes across the bodies of this young couple. We do not see the murder of Emma and Buddy, but we see that Buddy is lying face down in the rain, but Emma has been tied to a tree with her face facing in the tree. We see a gunshot wounds on her back, but again, like that of the first victim, a lot more attention was given to the female. Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore were shot in the back of the head and evidence showed it happened outside the car and they were placed back into the car. Ramsey does spot the killer here, but unfortunately he is unable to get him. Now, despite the film had not portrayed Polly Ann Moore in a particular light, her brother did not receive any compensation for trying to sue the director. Now there have been two murders and two attempted murders. The town reacts by stocking up on guns and dreading nightfall. During the day, this town looks like a normal town and at night it becomes a hunting ground filled with fear. So they bring in the big guns, a famous criminal investigator, Texas Ranger, Captain J.D. Morales. Ramsey and Morales, they work together to find the killer. Morales is treated like somewhat of a celebrity when he gets to Texacana and the press are waiting. But he doesn't seem phased by it all. He lets everyone know he's the boss and tells the chief that this will be done his way. And to be fair, which is quite unusual, they agree. The information people get is when he tells you and when he is ready to tell you. And it's nice not to see any like dick measuring going on here. And they realize that the case is important and it's not about their ego. You do hear of a lot of cases where the police want to get the prize. So rather than being interested in, in the, you know, the public... They care more about brownie points. We don't get that here. And it's refreshing. He is also thankful for what they will do to help him. And they're also happy to have one of their men on board. So it's good to see that they're all actually on the same page and, you know, want to work together. They do add a bit of comedy to this film, which it's a bit weird. It's kind of the patrolman, A.C. Benson, a.k.a. Sparkplug. And he is played by the director, Charles B. Pierce. They portray him as this complete buffoon and it kind of takes you back to the comedy you might see in a silent movie, you know, back in the um, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin days. And he has no idea how to deal with public complaints. He's very rude and aggressive and he drives like a complete maniac. And watching him, it's hard to think he actually directed this because he's a complete moron in the movie, you know. But, you know, that probably just shows what a good director he is. 
So the next couple to come upon the mass killer was on April 13th. Betty Jo Booker, who was only 15, and Paul Martin, who was only 17. The young couple were attacked after Booker's band played at the VFW club. Paul was found on the side of the road. He had been shot four times and Betty was found a couple of miles away from Paul. She had been shot twice and an autopsy revealed she had been shot at point blank range. The characters in the movie who represent the young couple are Peggy Loomis, played by Cindy Butler, and Roy Allen, played by Steve Lyons. While in the film, they appear to be a couple. Apparently in real life, they were just friends. You can tell with the scene that Peggy doesn't want to go, but Roy convinces her to do so. While there, she obviously insists on leaving. She's not happy. And it's quite early in the morning and she has a curfew and needs to be home. And this is where it ramps up and shows the killer, you know, has no control over his rage. I mean, we've already seen a bit of it, but this scene really like, he, he wants what he wants and nothing's going to stop him. So the couple actually do begin to leave, but we can see the killer kind of bent over, moving along with the in line with the car. He's very close to it. And what is strange here is as the couple are driving off, you feel they're going to be safe because they've started moving. They've just had this close call. And, but the car was going super slow. It was going really slow as they were moving off. And the killer then jumps almost into the window of the driver. The door flies open and the killer's like hanging on and the car's spinning around and around. And he does get the driver out but he doesn't shoot him and smash, but he smashes him on the head with, you know, I think what looks like some kind of truncheon. The girl tries to go off in the car and she crashes it. And to be fair, she, she's stressed. She's only young. And also she's in the worst color dress, like for the woods. She's in this white dress. She has no idea where she's going. She's running around like crazy. She's loud. And when she tries to be quiet, it's not much luck because you're in the woods. So every every step is a leaf or a twig cracking. And he does catch up with her and drags her off. Roy kind of comes too, but not enough to help her or himself. And the killer does that thing where, you know, again, he ties her to the tree. This scene's a bit more visual than the rest of them. As he's tying her up, Roy makes an attempt to run. And I think Roy doesn't know that he has a gun. So I find it strange that he doesn't try and help Peggy. You, you could potentially try and take this guy with a truncheon. I... I don't know, I felt like here, and I'm not saying this is the way it went with obviously the actual victim, but it's like he gave up really easily. Like maybe I'm being too harsh because obviously I wasn't in the situation, but I don't know, it just didn't just didn't sit right. The scene here, you know, it doesn't obviously represent what the real story was. Peggy has her, uh, she has an instrument in this, it's a trombone, and the killer gets really creative here. He ties a knife to the end of it and whenever he's pulling it kind of back and forth, it stabs her. So whoever came up with this, that's pretty messed up. And when we see it it move, he does it again with this force and anger. Like remember when I said in the beginning when he took the cable out of the car and like thrusted it forward, it was the same kind of thing here. He's just very, what's the, like the way he shoots out and it's just all, body's all tensed up and you know, again, this girl is subjected to a more torturous experience than the boy. You can tell here again, the girl is the the interest here. After this death, we see the authorities trying to give a profile of what type of person they're looking for, but Morales doesn't buy into it. So Dr. Cress comes along, played by Early Smith, and he describes the killer as a sadist, 
motivated by a strong sex drive and believes catching him will probably not happen. He was right there. It is a typical thing where they discuss how the killer could be someone they know, live a normal life, and they would never know. They do this over lunch. It's all very casual. And while they're eating, they show the shoes of a man within a restaurant while they're chatting. Very openly, I might add, about who this killer, you know, what type of person this killer is. And I'm not sure if they do it now, and I hope they don't. But I feel like such sensitive information should be kept solely between the people involved in solving the case. You know, in, in a room closed off, not in a restaurant. I mean, we've seen in cases before with like Edmund Kemper, for instance, how he would get information about the case. You know, he was the killer, the serial killer in this bar he drank in. And the police knew him and kind of was they, I think he referred himself as like a friendly nuisance or something. So speaking so freely the way they do in the restaurant to Dr. Kreese just gives out all the information on the killer. And from what we can safely assume when we are given the shot of the shoes walking out of said restaurant, this killer just heard it all. We are supposed to think that this is the killer sitting among these potential victims. So one trait they believed he had was intelligence. Well, yes, this scene would suggest that he is very intelligent as he's just got all the information he needed and it doesn't make the police and the authorities look very bright. They do have one potential suspect throughout the film and we see this with another comedic scene with Sparkplug along with Morales and Ramsey as they're heading to this spark, uh, suspect. This young man is chased down by like every police officer available. And again, Sparkplug is driving like a maniac with this weird kind of fiddle music in the background and he lands in a swamp. Um, Eddie, played by Joe Catalanotto, has confessed to being the killer, but they know it's not him. They just think, you know, he wants a bit of fame. So the next kill really does show how the killer is changing things up. Before, it's always been very isolated up at Lover's Lane in the woods in your car. And while, yes, you can be safe in a car, it's not, you know, safe, safe as it would be, say, your house. And this takes place on the 3rd of May. A 37-year-old man, Virgil Starks, was watching telly in his farmhouse. His wife, Kate, was in bed when she heard a noise that caused her some concern and she went to investigate. She assumed he'd just dropped something, but when Kate got to Virgil, she found him slumped over with blood coming down his neck due to a little hole in the glass and she assumed that he had been shot through the window while simply sitting in his chair. Kate did did run to ring for help, but she wasn't... Uh, you know, she got shot twice in the face by the killer, but she did manage to escape the house and run to a neighbor for help. The neighbor did take her to hospital and luckily Kate did survive. This scene shows us the death of Virgil and the attempted murder of Kate. Uh, this is told from the characters of Floyd Reed. For some reason, I couldn't see his name on the credits and his wife, Helen Reed, who's played by Dawn Wells. We know that there has been a next victim selected and we know that there is going to be another one. And this is due to the fact that we see a woman outside, I think it's um, a restaurant, a shop. And we soon learn this is Helen Reed. Somebody is watching her when the woman gets into the car. We are, we see that she's been watched by a man in the shoes, the shoes that we'd seen in the restaurant. And I have to say, this is when the film kind of feels a bit more horror for me the way he comes upon the house because he follows her home. He's looking inside, he's scoping it out. And with the murders so far, as mentioned, they've been in the woods. And while that is horror, you know, you feel like your home should be safer once you're in your home. And while the house is safe, it's also very isolated. 
And when you're in that such isolation, you know, you don't, I wouldn't feel as protected, but also these people probably think when they're in the house, you know, this is my territory. I know my house better than the attacker. I know where I could hide. I know where to get away. But the way he kills, it, it the person doesn't stand a chance. Like this person is literally just sat in their chair watching the telly or something. And he you you see him behind him and he just shoots him. You don't expect that at all. You expect the, the killer to enter the house, not to kill from the outside. The creepiness of that scene where Lloyd is simply sitting in his chair, probably like he would any evening and relaxing, completely unaware of what is about to occur. Up until now, we've been warned not to go to the lover's lane, to stay inside at night. But this time it's the home, so the killer has completely changed his MO. Helen does try and run for help, but the killer comes up again at the screen door and he just seems so angry. Again, this guy is so angry. He does go to check on Floyd and this gives Helen the chance to escape. She does get shot as well. And again, she manages to make her way to the neighbor's house. Now, this woman must have been really brave in this to make it all the way. You feel her pain. You feel it as she bangs on the neighbor's door. Plus, just because she gets to the neighbor's doesn't mean that she's safe. I mean, this guy got into her house and killed her husband and has almost killed her. So what's to stop the killer from getting to the neighbor's house? So I wouldn't have felt safe at that particular time. So I suppose after the murder of Virgil and the attempted murder of his wife, you now know you're not safe in your own home. You can't even keep the curtains open. The killings will happen at night. The town becomes a ghost town. Police presence is upped. But there was nothing after this. I mean, before the killings would happen every three weeks and then three weeks came and went and there were no murders in Texarkana. It just stopped. And I think sometimes the not knowing can be worse because you're always wondering, could it happen again? I'd say these people, they never relaxed. The film, I, I did enjoy it. It's wasn't gory, but it did have that scare factor. Like when we see the killer, he always comes across as very angry. You're obviously not going to be able to reason with this person. We see him breathing heavily through his mask and he attacks with such force and hatred. This film is very much less is more, but it does the job. It gets across the atrocities of what this killer actually did. To this day, no one knows who the phantom killer is. I mean, he's probably dead or very, very old. The killer will take his reason for the murders of these innocent people to the grave. And this is one of those cases that probably haunted the police and all involved. It must be very hard to work on something, put so much effort into it, especially in a small town where everybody knows everyone and never know who did it. They never have an ending. And the chase at the end almost makes you feel like there is a scene at the end where you they chase him and you almost feel like they are going to catch him. but you know, they don't. And I didn't really know much about this story going into it, but it's that weird thing when you watch these types of films, isn't it? You're like, well, this time they're catching. It's kind of like the Titanic. Maybe it won't sink at the end of this film. But, you know, there was one suspect for these murders in real life called Yoel Swinney. He did have a criminal record and spent time in prison, but it was never proven that he actually did it. So I wondered if people continue to think it was him. You know, you get a name, you're always going to wonder, but he died in 1994. So he took that to the grave with him if it was him but it wasn't proven so we have to go along with it it wasn't but having said that that is my little take on the time that dreaded sundown i would uh, recommend giving it a watch 
And as always, thank you for listening. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes and Podchaser. And if you have any film suggestions, let me know. For updates, reviews, behind the scenes, you can always go to Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast, Twitter as a Nightmare Pod, Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare, or email me as onceuponanightmarepod at gmail.com. I'm also on buymeacoffee.com slash a nightmare pod. And uh, yeah, I will chat to you very soon. So stay safe right there. Bye.